Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish Galatians 3 this morning. We're going to read verse 25 to verse 29. Galatians 3, 25 to 29. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you would encourage us and build us up in our faith and open our understanding and our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word here, Lord. And Lord, what you have done for us is so magnificent, so wonderful, so amazing and incomprehensible that we so easily just don't get it. And I pray that this morning, Lord, we would get it. We would understand. We wouldn't leave here in the dark. But Father, that we would see what you've done for us and who we are in Christ as we've read here, that, Lord, we would be so amazed and encouraged, and turn all of this into praise for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I love about about experiencing four seasons is the contrast between the seasons. I know you Southern California people are going to say, forget it, Eli, you're just saying that because you're from Canada. But I, that's right, and Alan knows this. I'm saying one thing I like about experiencing the four seasons is the contrast because you don't just enjoy all the seasons, you get to enjoy them in contrast with one another. And there's a special enjoyment that comes from having the experience of the contrast. There's a special enjoyment that comes with that contrast. The word contrast comes from the Latin, uh, a Latin root, con contrastere. And contra means against, and in Latin, stare means to stand. So the word contrast means stand against, to stand against. So there's two things that are standing against each other. Daniel Webster, in his dictionary, when he's talking about the word contrast, says that a contrast contributes, one contributes to the visibility or effect of the other. So one side of the contrast actually contributes to the visibility or the effect of the other. So while you can enjoy, you know, a season all year, you can enjoy the summer weather all year long, you can enjoy it in a different way when it's set against the winter. I like the cold of the winter. It makes me notice the warmth of the summer. 
It makes me appreciate the warmth of the summer. I often say how I like to come in from the cold into the house. It makes me appreciate being inside, right? We don't often appreciate being inside because we don't feel the bitterness of the cold outside. The American author John Steinbeck says this, What good is the warmth of summer without the cold of winter to give it its sweetness? I agree. And also the aridness of the summer makes us appreciate the verdancy of the spring, and it helps us to enjoy it. Now, most of us here are land dwellers, right? We're not sailors. How many of you have ever got down on the ground and kissed it, and gripped it, and hugged it, and said, I love you, O land, right? Most of us don't do that. But imagine a man who, after being in a harrowing storm on the sea in a boat in a ship he's out there in the middle of the ocean and there's nothing but waves and wind and he thinks he's going to drown it's a squall what happens when that man comes off of the sea onto the land what does he do he gets down on his knees and he hugs the land and he kisses this oh i love being on the land and i'm never going back out to sea right He doesn't want to go back out there. He kisses the land, he loves it, and he wants to stay there forever. Why? Because of that contrast. If he had just always been on the land, he would have just taken it for granted. He would have enjoyed the land. He would have not been in any, you know, sea danger. But because he experienced the other, that contrast makes him enjoy the land even more. Contrast can also contribute not just to enjoyment, but to misery. The 6th century philosopher Boethius said that the greatest misery in adversity is once to have been happy. The greatest misery in adversity is once to have been happy. Isn't that true? You see, if you're born into slavery, there's misery that you experience in life. But it's even worse misery if you're born free, experience freedom, and then you're enslaved, right? And now you know the contrast. There was misery before, but now there's an extra element of misery because you know in your mind the difference, and you know what it's like to be free. John Bunyan commented when people go to hell, it's not just that people are born in hell and all they know is hell, that they never knew any pleasure, but that when a man goes to hell, he says goodbye to all pleasure, which makes hell even worse. But if you're born free, sure, you enjoy your freedom. But imagine being born a slave and then being freed. How much more will you appreciate and enjoy your freedom because you knew the slavery and you've experienced the contrast? The book of Galatians, and especially this latter part of the book of Galatians, is greatly taken up with the subject of contrast. I don't know if you've noticed that, but look at verse 23. In verse 23, it says, Before faith came, this is what it was like. And in verse 25, But now that faith has come, this is what it's like. So we have a contrast here in Galatians 3. Before faith and after faith. And as we read on, he talks about uh, before, in chapter 4, Before we were sons, before sonship came, this is what it was like. But after sonship has come, this is what it was like. He gives us another contrast in chapter 4 we're going to look at. And he gives us a third contrast in chapter 4 as we read on. Verse 
before knowing God. This is what you were like, and this is what things were like. But after you have come to know God, this is what it's like. So Paul is taken up with contrast in this section of the book of Galatians, and we're going to be looking at that together. What Paul wants Christians to see, and what we need to see, is what our situation was before we became Christians, before faith came. And what our situation is now that faith has come after we've become a Christian. He wants us to see that contrast so we can enjoy our new situation in Christ in contrast. And so like the man who comes off of the sea onto the land, we will grip our new situation, we will kiss it, and we will say, I'm never going back. Amen? That's what Paul wants us to see. This morning, we're going to talk about when this change of situation occurred. We're going to talk about two things. When this change of situation occurred in our lives and what is involved in the change of that of situation. So first, when this change of situation occurred. Now, there's some confusion about how to interpret the text that we read. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, and in verse 23, as we noticed, before faith has come. So Paul's talking about a time before faith and a time after faith has come. And there's some confusion. When was this? What time does Paul have in mind when he's talking about before faith and after faith? And it's not uncommon for Bible readers to interpret this in the sense of world history and the coming of Christ. So when Paul says, before faith came... We were under the law. And what many Bible readers think is that in world history, before Jesus came, we were under the law. But after Jesus came, we're no longer under the law. And they think of it like that, in, in that sense of world history and when Jesus came into the world. But the question is, wasn't there faith in the world before Christ? Before faith came? Can we rightly say that before Jesus came, there was no faith? I mean, Paul talks about Abraham having faith and being a believer. And isn't the law still in effect after Jesus came, right? After, after faith came, we're no longer under, under a tutor. Is that true for the world and world history? That after Jesus comes, the law is, is no effect anymore? Now, some commentators will defend this sense of world history by saying, well, before Christ came, it was the era of law. The, 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 the world was characterized by law. But now that Christ has come, the world is characterized by faith. It's the era of faith. Primarily, things are about faith now since Jesus came. But I, brothers and sisters, don't believe that's what Paul's saying at all. And in fact, I don't believe since the coming of Christ, the world has experienced the era of faith. Would you agree? <laughs> Everything is primarily now characterized not by law, but by faith. I think things have actually not changed in the world that much since Jesus came in sense of how people understand God and how they relate to him through law or through faith. It's always been a minority beforehand and it will always be a minority after until the Lord Jesus returns. Faith did not come with Christ and the law did not leave world history when Jesus came. It is more accurate to say this, that what Paul is talking about when he says before faith and after faith and that he's talking about individual histories. Individual histories. Look at verse 22. 
The scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now look how he refers to those who believe in the next passage. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. He's talking about those who believe. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, who? We who have believed, to lead us to Christ so that we who believe may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we who believe are no longer under a tutor. So it's more right to think of Paul talking about individual histories. Every single person is either a before-faith person or an after-faith person. They're either in a before-faith situation or an after-faith situation. Which are you? Has, has faith come to you personally yet? Or are you still in that before-faith era and time and situation where you don't believe in Christ and you haven't learned the lesson of law? If you are a before-faith person, then you are under the law and the Bible says you are under the curse. If you are a before-faith person, you are under the curse. If you are an after-faith person, that is, if you're in the situation of those who believe, you are no longer under the law, the scripture says here, and you are no longer under the curse, but you are actually blessed. And it all depends on whether you personally believe in Christ or whether you don't believe in Christ. The law didn't go anywhere when Christ came. It's still in force. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, that those who are under the law will be judged by the law on the day of judgment. So the law hasn't left. You need to get out from under the law. But the law still remains in effect and will until the day of judgment when the world is judged. Individually, we must become free from the law. And you're either free from it or you're not. And let's remember, last week we talked about the passage beforehand, how the law not only condemns us, but that condemnation that God has shown us in the law is meant to lead us to Christ for deliverance. So if you're a before-faith person, it's good that you know that you're under the law and under a curse so that you can flee to Christ and be freed from the law. Let me put it simply. If your hope is in your good works, if your hope is in what you do, if you think that salvation and eternal life depends upon how well you perform, it, and you know God's going to judge the world, and so you think, I better shape up, I better be the person God wants me to be, because that's how you pass Judgment Day. You pass Judgment Day by being the person the law tells you you should be. If that's your hope and if that's what you're striving, if that is your uh, way of salvation and you're striving in that, you're under the law, you're under the curse, you're not going to make it. But God wants you to know that so you can give up hope in yourself Give up trying that way of the law and put your faith in Jesus to save you. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save people who don't obey. Jesus came to save us freely by his grace. Do you believe in Jesus and are trusting in him? Or are you trying to do this law? Are you before faith or after faith? If you have not believed in Christ, then I beseech you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're hearing what I'm saying and you still don't really understand, please talk to someone after church, myself or Brad or, or a Christian brother or sister, and ask them, what, what is this 
before faith and after thing. I want to believe in Christ. I want to be saved. And someone can help you. Learn today what the law requires and the way of escape through Jesus. Change your situation today. Become a faith after faith person today and receive the blessedness. So when this change of situation occurs is when we personally put our faith in Jesus. Secondly, let's look at what is involved in this change of situation, which is really what our passage is primarily about this morning. What is involved in this change of situation? Now, I've already said that when we put our faith in Christ, we're delivered from under the law and from under condemnation. But let's look closer at what Paul says this deliverance from law and condemnation means for us believers. Verse 26, look there with me. After Paul says in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, he makes this monumental statement in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the first mention in the book of Galatians by Paul of being sons of God or children of God. And wow, what a declaration that is. I think we as Christians are so used to hearing it. I'm a child of God. We're children of God, sons of God. We fail to see how amazing a declaration this is. And in verse 27 and 28, this is important to understand, Paul expounds what it means to be a son of God or how we are sons of God in verse 27 and 28. So verse 26, 27, and 28 are all about being sons of God. Don't just think verse 26 is. 27 and 28 also is about being a son of God. Now what does it mean to be a son or child of God? What does that mean? We're all sons of God through faith. I think that no Bible reader can deny this, that being a son of God is the crowning result of faith. It's the crowning result of faith. When you put your faith in Christ, this is the crowning thing that comes your way. This is the preeminent and blessed status, the most preeminent and blessed status that a human being can obtain. This is the end result of our faith. And even just a superficial reading of the Bible will show you that, that it is the crowning end result. It's not only Paul who's interested in this subject of the sons of God. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, John says that whoever believes in him, to those who received Christ, to them he gave the right to be called the children or the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. So John and Paul are saying the same thing. You are sons of God through faith. Now we're going to flip around a little bit here this morning. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're just going to briefly look at some things the Bible says about being a son of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 1. And what we see here in the text 
is the amazement that the Apostle John has that we are the sons of God. So what does the Bible reveal about this? Well, one of the things it shows us is that to be a son of God is absolutely amazing. John can't even hardly believe it's true. 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So John says that God, his love is so amazing. Think about it. Look at how amazing his love is that we would be called and that we would become the children of God. That should show us the amazing love of God for us. When you think about, as a Christian, that you, the fact that you are a child of God, does that make you think about how amazing the love of God is? Does it make you think about how much he cares about you and how much he loves you and how much he's taken care of you and how truly much he must love you if he's going to give you something like that, that you would become his child? Not just, okay, I forgive you, get lost, but hey, come on into my family and live with me forever. And John says it's because we're his children that the world doesn't know us just like it doesn't know God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Verse 5. Here we see that us becoming the children of God is actually God's end goal for, for us. That he predestined us, it tells us, unto this end. This is what God is after. This is what God wanted from before the foundation of the world. This is an amazing statement of how important being a son of God is. In verse 5 of Ephesians 1, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, notice, to himself. Before the foundation of the world, what was God wanting? To adopt us as sons to himself. When you think sons of God, don't just think some sticker that you tag onto yourself and it doesn't have much meaning. But understand, this is actually what God, his great goal is, his great end is, and that he actually wants to bring you close to himself. That being a son of God means intimacy with God. It means closeness with God as close as a son is with, a, with his father. An amazing statement. And so it's no surprise, turn to Revelation chapter 21, that when we get to the end of the Bible, we find a statement about being sons of God as a climactic end to this whole world and thing that God is doing. Rome, uh, Revelation 21. Verse 5. At the end of the Bible, in a climactic final statement of what the end will be. Verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, 
Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now this concept of being the sons of God is not unique to the New Testament. It's not unique to the New Testament. And so when you think about being a child of God or being a son of God, you shouldn't just think this is some new New Testament idea that was unknown before. When Paul says we are all the sons of God through faith, an Old Testament reader would pick up on what that means. Even this verse in Revelation 21, I will be as God and he will be my son. Doesn't that sound familiar with so many statements in the Old Testament? I will be your God and you will be my people. And we're going to see in the Old Testament that being the people of God is the same as being the sons of God as well. So, Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. We'll keep flipping around here a little bit. But I want us to see that this concept is from the Old Testament as well. And it's a very important one. Exodus 4.22 We should all be familiar with this verse. It's kind of a famous story. This is Moses at the burning bush. And God's giving him instructions as to what he should say to Pharaoh when he goes to Pharaoh. And here's what he tells Moses to say. In Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So that whole angel of death coming and killing Egypt's firstborn was because God's firstborn wasn't being let go by Pharaoh. And God says here, Israel's my son, my firstborn. Let my son go. Now that sounds similar to what Moses goes on to say in the book of Exodus, let my people go, right? To be the people of God is to be the sons of God. God brought forth Israel and birthed them and made them his own. Turn to Deuteronomy 14. Moses calls them the sons of the Lord, your God. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 and 2. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. This is one of the instructions he gives to Israel. You are the sons of the Lord your God because you are his sons, because you are his people, because you are his children. These are things you should not do, he says. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. 
And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You are the sons of God. You are the people of God. Now Israel, even though they are the sons of God, and God said, you are therefore to not do these things, did Israel walk according to their calling that God had called them to? How many of you remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, right at the beginning, after Isaiah introduces himself, in verse 1, in verse 2, he says, But hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has raised up children, but they have rebelled against me. So the book of Isaiah begins, and, and the theme of Isaiah is, God's raised up sons, God's raised up children, and yet they've rebelled against him. This is the story of the Old Testament. God raises up sons and they rebel against him. And turn to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most fascinating chapters in the Old Testament. Every Christian should become familiar with Deuteronomy 32. Because in Deuteronomy 32, before Israel even goes into the promised land, they're about to, Moses lays out their entire future story. One, one writer has called this the divine forecast of, Israel's, of Israel, the divine forecast of their history. Right before it even happens, Moses says, this is what's going to happen. This is what God is going to do. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 actually picks up on Deuteronomy 32. But here's what 32, some things 32 says about Israel as the sons of God, and it's so important. In verse 5 and 6, he says this, in 32, 5 and 6, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. So on the one hand, Moses says, you are the people of the Lord, but God is saying through Moses, but you're not, you're not my son. You are not my children. Why? Because of your defect. Because of the way you have behaved, because of the way you have rebelled against me, you are not my people. Verse 18 and 21 of 32. You neglected the rock who begot you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. So he calls them sons, but then he says, there's no faithfulness. They're perverted. I begot them, but they rebelled against me. And even though they're my sons, I say they're not my sons. Verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people or not my sons. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And do you remember in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10? Let's turn there. Hosea in the prophets. 
Hosea 1. Verse 10. Hosea is right after the book of Daniel. Daniel is right after the book of Ezekiel. You can find Ezekiel easiest, I think. <laughs> I still hear pages turning. So. <laughs> Hosea 1. Verse 9, the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or number, numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. You remember Paul quotes this in the book of Romans? And it's interesting that Paul actually applies this to the Gentiles as well. That in the place that it's said that you're not my people, and the Gentiles were not begotten by God, the Gentiles were not the people of God, the Gentiles were not the ones that he made his own. He says, you are the children of the living God. You are the sons of God. And this is what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3, that you Gentiles, through faith in Jesus, you are the sons of God. This Old Testament theme here of who are the sons of God? Who are the people of God? Who are the children of God that God has brought near to himself? You guys who believe in Jesus are the sons of God. Jews who believe in Jesus are the sons of God. Don't listen to these agitators who, are, who believe in this concept of the sons of God, but they're saying, no, no, you're not a son of God unless you become circumcised and keep the law and do all the things that you're supposed to do. And Paul says, no, through faith, you become the sons of God. And I'd like to make two very important observations about this idea of being the children of God. First of all, what we can see here in the scripture is that to be a child of God or a son of God is to be clearly without defect, without corruption, without rebellion, without unrighteousness. You are what God intends his children to be. To be a son of God is to say that you are righteous, that you have been brought near to God, and that you know God and that he knows you, and there's no defect in you. You are what you're supposed to be. We can say that from the text, can't we? Because Israel, who didn't obey God and who didn't perform righteousness, he says, you're not my children. In fact, even the Jews understand this, that to be the children of God and to be the people of God is to be righteous. And I'd like to quote to you two Jewish writings from before the days of Jesus, so that when Paul said, you're the sons of God, there would have been this understanding. Here's from the book of Jubilees. The author of the book of Jubilees, written before Jesus ever came into the world. After this, they will turn to me in all uprightness and with all their heart and with all their soul and I will circumcise the foreskin of their heart and the foreskin of the heart of their seed and I will create in them a holy spirit 
and I will cleanse them so that they shall not turn away from me from that day unto eternity. And their souls will cleave to me and to all my commandments, and they will fulfill my commandments, and I will be their father, and they shall be my children, and they shall be called children of the living God, and every angel and every spirit shall know, yea, they shall know that these are my children, and that I am their father in uprightness and righteousness, and that I love them. This is what being a son of God means and how it was understood to the Jews. To be a son of God or a child of God is to be righteous, is to be intimate with God, is to be close with God, is to keep his commandments, is to be just what you're supposed to be, and all the angels in heaven will know it. These are the people of God. Psalms of Solomon. Another work written before Jesus, not actually written by Solomon. Quote, And he shall gather together a holy people, whom he shall lead in righteousness, and he shall judge the tribes of the people that have been sanctified by the Lord his God. And he shall not suffer unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst, nor shall there dwell with them any man that knows wickedness, for he shall know them that they are all sons of their God. So clearly, to be a son of God is to not know any wickedness and to be righteous. I think this is important because a lot of people, a lot of Christians in particular, who don't see this Old Testament background to what it means to be a son of God, they have this idea that when you become a Christian, you become a part of God's family. You've heard this, right? When you become a Christian, you become a child of God. What that means and all that means is that you become a part of God's family, kind of like when you have a child. Now you're a part of the family. Now you can be a, a terribly rebellious child, right? You can be a part of the family, but be a really rebellious child, but you're still a part of the family. And there's nothing that can be that can change the fact that you're a part of the family, right? How many of you have heard Christians say this? When you become a Christian, you become a part of God's family, you're his child, he's your father, but man, can you be rebellious? But don't worry, you're still a part of the family. That is not the way the Bible understands being a child of God. Being a child of God, yes, it means you're a part of the family, but you're a part of the family because you're not rebellious. God's children are righteous and not rebellious. That's why they're a part of the family. And if you were unrighteous before God, then you wouldn't be a part of his family. He'd say, this is not my son. So we need to change our thinking, Christians, as we think about what it means to be a child of God. If you're a child of God today, if you can say, yes, I have believed in Jesus and I am a child of God, you are saying that you are righteous and that you have no wickedness and that God looks on you and sees no defect. That's why you're in. The other observation I'll make about the ch being a child of God is that it is therefore wrong to say that everyone is a child of God. It is wrong to say that everyone is a child of God. That's something we hear a lot around here, isn't it? Being a child of God is not the default condition of everyone. According to Paul in the Bible, it is the crowning result of faith. This is the preeminent status any human beings could arrive at through faith. This is not the default position. In Mormonism, 
everyone is called a child of God. There's a very famous song in Mormonism sung by their children. I am a child of God. And essentially the song goes like this. I am a child of God and therefore, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then I'll be blessed and go to be with God. So the idea in Mormonism is that we're all children of God. That's the default status. Now from that position, if we go and obey, if we perform, if we keep the commandments, if we do what we're supposed to do, then we'll get the good stuff that God wants to give. But not so in the Bible. We are not all children of God. And it's not, I'm a child of God and I'll be blessed if I obey. But the Bible says, I will be blessed because I am a child of God. Because I am a child of God through faith. Because I am righteous. Because I am without defect. I will therefore be blessed. Now at this point, probably we all are wondering, how can it be that I am a child of God? If you're defining being a child of God as being one without defect, being one without sin, being one without rebellion, being one without unrighteousness. If it means that there is no corruption or defect in me, how then am I a child of God? And this is the point. Let's turn back to Galatians now, chapter 3. This is the point of verse 27 and verse 28. In which Paul explains how it is that we are the sons of God. He makes the statement in verse 26, you are all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 27 and 28, he opens up that statement and explains it. In verse 27, notice it starts with the word for. There's a lot of uh, conjunctive statements here. In verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Why are we all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ? For, verse 27, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is why we are the children of God. This is why we are righteous. And this is why we have intimacy with God because all of us have clothed ourselves who have been baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ. That's why you're a child of God because we've been baptized into Christ. Here Paul talks about union with Christ. Is Paul saying that everyone who is baptized in water is a child of God? No. In fact, we have examples in the New Testament of people who are baptized in water and who are not believers and who are not the children of God. And let's remember that Paul is referring only to those who believe in the context, right? When he says, we are the children of God, he's talking about we who have believed are the children of God. And it's we who have believed who have been baptized into Christ. Paul is pointing to the spiritual reality of baptism that it is baptism, look at verse 27, not into water, but into Christ. 
And water baptism is simply a, symbolizes this real baptism, this real union, this real immersion into Jesus Christ and into his body. This is what happens to us when we believe. John Calvin rightly comments on this verse. When Paul addresses believers, he then views the symbols in connection with the truth which they represent. He's talking about the truth which baptism represents. Baptism represents our union with Christ. When we become united to Christ, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, that the Bible teaches us this, that when we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we actually become united to Christ. And he says, you've actually put on Christ. Literally in the Greek, it's you've sunk into Jesus. That's what it means. You've sunk into him. You've put him on. And when you put him on and sunk into him and were united to him and baptized into him, you lost your old sinful identity and you took on his righteous identity. You're clothed with him. You're surrounded by him. You're immersed in him. It is not you anymore, but it is him. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? I've been crucified with Christ. It's not me anymore who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. This is that baptism language in 2.20. There's been a union, and it's not me anymore, but it's Christ. Romans chapter 6, from 3 to 11, and I'll just summarize, Paul talks about this very union with Christ. He says, look, when you, when you are united to Christ and you sink into him, what this means is that what is true of Jesus is now true of you, Right? What happened to Jesus is now counted to have happened to you because you have united to him. And Paul points it out very clearly. He says, when you are united to Jesus through faith, you're united to him in his death and you're united to him in his resurrection. That is, the death that he died is now your death. You've been crucified with Christ. When you look at the cross and see Jesus dying there, you can, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can see you have died your judgment has come. You have, the price has been paid for your sins because Jesus has died for you. And not only has Jesus died, but he is risen. He is alive unto God at the right hand of the Father. If you are a believer, you are united to Christ not only in his death, not only are you just dead and gone, but you are now risen in Christ and the Bible says, sitting at the right hand of the Father in intimate fellowship with God, totally righteous, like Jesus is righteous, totally without any sin, right? And Paul says in Romans 6, this is so amazing, guys, I know, but just as it happened to Jesus, consider that it happened to you, because it did. How many of us as Christians think about that? We get up in the morning, and we think, you know, Reality is, I'm actually dead to sin and dead with Christ and risen with Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. I'm a child of God. And man, fill that with meaning. I'm a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means is I'm without any defect. What that means is I, I'm without any sin. What that means is I have perfect, intimate union and fellowship with God. I am his people without any unrighteousness whatsoever. Why? Because I have clothed myself with Christ. I'm not making a statement about how good I am in and of myself. 
There is not one of us here, brothers and sisters, who is a child of God through what we do, who is without defect and unrighteous by our own behavior and standing. Amen? It is only because we have clothed ourselves with Christ. If you are a Christian, you have clothed, clothed yourself with Christ, and you are righteous. You are a child of God. Isn't that amazing? We are blameless in Christ. And verse 28 shows us that because we've clothed ourselves with Christ as believers, this is also why all believers are one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, man nor female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus because all believers have clothed themselves with Christ. And it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we are all one. All of these things that he lists in verse 28 are causes of great contention in our world, aren't they? In the, in the, certainly in our world today, but especially back in the day, religious tension between Jew and Gentile, and social tensions between slaves and masters, and even in our day, employers and employees. Lots of contention between gender these days especially. And what Paul is saying is that as Christians, we are all one in Christ. We have all, no matter who you are, you're a slave, doesn't matter. You're a master, doesn't matter. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Male or female, doesn't matter. What is your status with God? You are a son of God, a child of God. Why? Because you have died and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. And it was Paul saying that for Christians, these distinctions are no longer real in every sense, as some people affirm. Some people say that according to verse 28, we shouldn't even think of ourselves in terms of gender anymore. We should just get rid of that concept of gender. Usually they just focus on the gender one. I mean, it's pretty hard to focus on like employee and employer status, but some people will use this verse to justify things like homosexuality or any kind of sexuality. Is Paul saying that none of these distinctions should have any uh, weight with us in any sense any longer? And that's, the answer is no. As John Stott rightly commented on this verse, when we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they do not matter for us as Christians. They are still there, but they no longer create any barriers to fellowship with God. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means. How do, are you a child of God? Yes. Why? Because you're a male? No. Because you're a female? No. Because you're a Jew? No. Because you're a Gentile? No. Because you're in Christ. And this is the basis of our unity. In fact, if we were to get rid of all distinctions in every sense, that wouldn't really be unity, it'd just be uniformity. We'd just all be the same because no one is male, no one is female, no one is Jew, no one is Gentile. What this is saying is, despite the fact that these things exist, we're all one in Christ Jesus because we've all clothed, our, clothed ourselves with Christ. In Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, Paul gives us a deeper look at this when he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he says, whether we're Jew or Gentile, all of us have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. He only 
is the way we are right with God. And since that's true, we're all fellow citizens and none of us are aliens in the household of God. We're all on the same footing in Christ before God. Amen? Christ, therefore, should bring believers together, believers who are different. I think, on a side note, this is why I find racial churches odd. Chinese church, Spanish church, white church, black church. It's odd. I understand their use when it comes to language barriers. I get that. When it comes to language barriers, um, there's obviously value in having a church that's tailored so that people can understand what's being said. But if there is no language barrier, don't choose a church because it's your race. You know? Sure, I can understand English fine, but because I'm black, I'm going to go to the black church. <laughs> Why? Because I'm black. No. We're all one in Christ. Go where you're going to be edified. Don't just go with your group, your, your, your group of earthly distinctions, right? Because we are all one in Christ. And finally, verse 29, because we are in Christ, we are one family, we are the children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. We are blessed and we will be blessed because we are righteous through faith in Jesus, because we are the sons of God. We will be blessed. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that God has taken us out of the depths of our sin and condemnation where none of us were children of God, none of us were righteous, none of us deserved blessing, none of us could have gotten anything but damnation. And he's brought us into this place that we're reading about in scripture here. You are this. You are the sons of God. You are one in Christ. You are the children of Abraham. You are heirs to the promise. Wow. Behold what manner of love. In conclusion this morning, I'd like to point out one more thing that's very important. What Paul says in verse 26 through 28 about us being the sons of God is the corollary of not being under the law in verse 25. Now that faith has come, you are no longer under the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the corollary of not being under the law. What I mean is that if you're not under the law, it follows that you're not, it follows that you are a son of God. These things are not to be separated. Because you are not under the law, you are therefore a son of God. You see how those go together? If you're under the law, you're not a son of God. But because you're not under the law, through Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. And what that conclusively proves is that freedom from the law that Paul's talking about here, when he says you're no longer under the law, no, you are a son of God. That conclusively proves that to Paul, being free from the law is something wonderful. And it is not, as so many people say, simply being freed from the ceremonial commands and requirements, right? So many people, you, you want to know how non-Christians who claim to believe the Bible read books like Romans and Galatians where it says we're not justified by law but through faith and how they wiggle around that and get out of the implications that we believe 
that we're justified only through faith alone. Because they say, when Paul says, and the Bible says we're not under the law, all it means is we don't have to keep the ceremonies anymore. That's all it means. But when you see that the corollary to not being under the law is to be a child of God clothed with Christ, you realize he's not just saying, you're not under the ceremonies anymore, but don't you forget that you're under all the other commandments still. You would never be a son of God if that were true, right? You would never be righteous. You would never be in fellowship with God if it was simply the ceremonial law that was removed. No, brothers and sisters, it's all the commandments of God and all of their threats that has been removed. We are free from all law and therefore all sin and therefore all condemnation and therefore we are the sons of God because we've been delivered from the whole thing. That's the only way that we can actually be righteous. And only by seeing this will we see the true contrast between before faith and after faith that is here in Scripture. Before faith, we were not the children of God. We were subject to the threats of the law. We were under condemnation because we were under the law and all of us were disobedient and defective and rebellious. The Bible says we were not the children of God, but we were children of wrath. You want to try to stand in your own righteousness? You're a child of wrath. You're without any righteousness. All of your righteousnesses are filthy rags to God. And you have no hope, and you are without God if you're before faith. But because of Jesus, after faith, if you put your faith in him and what he has done, then you are the children of God. You are not subject to the law in any way. You are without condemnation in every way. There's no threats that you have to deal with. You are fully righteous, fully blameless. You have a full hope. And most of all, you have God. He has brought you near to himself, into his family. He's brought you to himself. All because of Jesus and faith in him. And clothing yourself with him. It's by seeing this contrast, brothers and sisters, what our situation was, standing against what it is now, that we're going to be amazed and greatly enjoy, in contrast, who we are in Christ and what our situation is in Christ. Just like that man on the sea in the harrowing storm arrives back on the land and falls on his knees and kisses the ground and says, I'm never going out to sea again. Only when we see that contrast will we, like him, fall on our knees and thank and bless God for Jesus Christ, saving us from the depths of our sin and condemnation and our hopelessness into this large place of blessing and safety and intimacy and blamelessness with God. We are his children, inheritors of all things. Amazing. And we'll say, I'm never going back. I'm never going back to see I'm never going back to the law because there is nothing there for me but death. I'm going to stay right here in Jesus Christ. Once again, if you don't believe, today is your day because you don't know when your chance is over. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to have to give an account to God. As Jesus said to one man who was procrastinating, he said, you fool, this day you're going to have to give an account to God for your soul. If you are a before-faith person, today become an after-faith person. And if you are a Christian today, rejoice and be glad, 
and give God all the glory for this amazing change of situation that has happened in your life through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there are no words that can rightly be used to express all of these things, Lord. That you would love us so much and do this for us. I just pray that through the weakness of my words, Lord, something of this amazing truth would get through to our hearts and we would see the contrast and be amazed. Lord, help us to thank you and praise you each day and to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive unto you. Help us to consider our true situation now as believers and to enjoy it. Thank you that you have done this for us, Lord, that we are your children and all that that means. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.